So we're talking about the unbounded connectivity, I mean, th this is where we're talking about our having our constellation up there. And it's got an optical satellite link, so we've got a backbone of optical linking, and we're also connecting optically with our customers. So we're connecting now with them, sending us our, their data fast. We're able to get that data down for the information and being able to make those decisions as quickly as possible, and you have like real-time access to your satellite that's up there, and that doesn't exist right now. You don't have real-time access to your satellite to be able to move it, to command it. If you want to take a picture of something down on Earth, uh, that could take 30, 60 minutes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I take a drive to Spadina Avenue in downtown Toronto to have a chat with Sarah McKenzie-Picot and Diane Burchett from Kepler Communications, Inc. Sarah is the Space Systems Designer and Assembly Integration and Test Lead, and Diane is the Vice President of Engineering. First founded in 2015, the company went from paper to orbit in less than a year, and today, they're making satellites on Spadina. So, Toronto is a world-renowned city for many things, and for many reasons. But manufacturing, sadly, is not really one of them. Now, from my seat at Trillium, I know that lots of manufacturing happens in Toronto. A lot more than people think. But, sadly, a lot less than it once was. Which is why we were so shocked to learn about the existence of Kepler Communications, Inc. See, less than 100 years ago, the building that they are in was likely making suits and dresses. Today they're making satellites. Oh, and did I mention they're doing so on Spadina Avenue? And the interview for the podcast did not disappoint. Now, I'm going to be glossing over a lot of stuff that Sarah and Diane covered in much better detail in the episode than I possibly can, so I encourage you to check the timestamp for the discussion, but the gist of their technology is this. Kepler's orbiting group of satellites, or their constellation, as they call it, opens the door for continuous, high-speed, real-time communication between satellites. The way it works is they have multiple satellites in LEO, or low-Earth orbit, and these satellites all communicate with one another in very interesting ways that are discussed in the episode. Spoiler alert, some of it involves lasers. As one satellite goes out of range of a ground station, another satellite will be orbiting right behind it to maintain communication with the ground station and the rest of the group. It's pretty cool stuff. Oh, and did I mention they're making these amazing little devices on Spadina Avenue? The implications and future uses of this technology are a growing market, which Kepler is looking to get into. From the tour we got and what we saw, they're positioned well to keep doing what they're doing. I can't wait to see what Kepler will design next, and I'm happy they're going to be making it on Spadina in Toronto, in Ontario. And here we are. Brendan, we're on Spadina, aren't we? We are on Spadina. We're downtown Toronto today, and I'm being joined by Brendan Sweeney. Hello, Brendan. Hello. And, but we're also being joined by two new friends on Spadina. To my right, please introduce yourself. I'm Sarah McKenzie-Picot. I'm a systems engineer and the assembly integration test lead at Kepler Communications. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. And to my left, hello. Hi, it's Diane Burchett here. I'm the vice president of engineering at Kepler down here in Spadina. So. Before we turn the microphones on, Brendan, you and I were discussing about 100 years ago in this building. What do you think was being done 100 years ago in this building? Quite likely, quite possibly something around clothing, textiles, maybe men's suits, maybe dresses. Uh, but this is generally known to be uh, Toronto's 
former, it's the fashion district now, or just the north end of it, but this was where clothing was made. And today we're not making clothing, are we? No, no, we're not making no, clothing. No, we're not. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we're not. Um, Diane and Sarah are making satellites on Spadina, if you can imagine that. So I am going to stop talking and let Diane and or Sarah tell us a little bit about Kepler. Sure. So I can tell you that Kepler was founded in 2015, and it was uh, our founders from the, they were at University of Toronto at the time, they were graduate students there, and they recognized that there was uh, a gap that needed in space for, for communications. Um, so they got together and they decided that they were going to try and fill this gap. And they were supported by the U University of Toronto in the hatchery at the time. And they went for a, just under a year from um, paper to orbit for the first satellite. I, under a year from under paper year. to... How did, how did you get that so tight? I mean, I know how hard it is to build a, a car. <laughs> I mean, you guys went from paper to orbit in a, in a year? Tell us about that. Sarah, were you here at the time? I wasn't here for Kip. I joined at Case. But yeah, no, generally speaking, most of our, well, our Generation 1 spacecraft were the ones that did, that were concept to launch in one year. And I was associated with those guys. Um, it's a lot of dedication. It's a lot of, a lot of dedication is really what I would say. A lot of trial and a error. A lot of trial and error. Um, we, for the first couple of spacecraft, we leveraged nearby resources. I'll mostly talk about a Generation 1 spacecraft. Our Generation 0 spacecraft were our Pathfinders tech demonstrators. And then our Generation 1 spacecraft are the ones that make up the majority of our constellation now. And the Gen 1s, we worked with University of Toronto Space Flight Lab to design and procure the platform, the what we call the satellite bus and we built the payload and we designed the payload. And so we were able to leverage some of their experience for the platform itself. And it allowed us to focus in on the payload and a lot of the really custom stuff and allowed us to really, really develop quickly. And yeah, we've just built a bunch of those guys now. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about the, the one year thing. No, that, 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 that's, that's, that's very informative. So what do they do? So our spacecraft are communication satellites. Um, the ones that we have on orbit right now carry radio payloads at this point. So uh, we have all of our spacecraft carry a KU band payload. That's a very high data rate payload. We can basically transmit at 300 megabits per second. Are we higher than that now? What is our official number? Yeah, higher, a little higher over 300 megabits per second. And it allows us to move a lot of data very quickly. So some of our early customers were things like, uh, we had a public mission with the Polar Stern ice-breaking vessel. This is a really cool one. So it was this ice-breaking vessel that went and embedded itself in the like Arctic sea ice and just hung out there and did a lot of looking at how climate change was impacting the Arctic ice. And they generate a lot of data. And so what they would do, they're in the middle of nowhere. They can't get the data to, I think it was Norway, that it needed to go to. And so they had one of our antennas on, the, on their ship, and they would send their data from the ship up to our satellites, and our satellites would just put those on our SSDs, on the satellites, fly over to our ground stations and send it down to us, and we would email it off to whoever it ended up needing to go to. So that was our early concept, was kind of a store and forward. We nicknamed it Dropbox in Space, sort of, <laughs> you know, a Dropbox in Space sort of thing where, you know, you're not working with, you're working with delay tolerant data. This, this data, you need to get it within 
a few hours, a couple days, but you don't need it right this second. As we build out our constellation, we're doing something that's super exciting. Now we've got enough spacecraft to start demonstrating intersatellite links. So our first intersatellite link demonstration happened on Kepler 16 and 17. And I was really proud of our operations team for this one. Four days after we launched our spacecraft, we demonstrated intersatellite links. So this is a radio intersatellite link. And what's really cool is um, this is the beginning of our um, what we're calling the S-band user equipment. So it operates in the S-band and radio S-band, and it, it allows our satellites to talk between themselves. And what it'll allow us to do when we give it to our customers, our customers will be able to put that on their spacecraft and they'll be able to talk to our satellites. And so instead of having to wait for the satellite to fly over the ground station, which would happen, you know, five to 10 times a day, they just talk to whatever of our satellites is closest. And when we have a big enough constellation, we'll be able to send that data through our constellation to a ground station. So it allows the operator on the ground to have constant communication to their satellite, to send commands, to check on it. To, so it allows immediate access. And this is what we're working towards. And we're, we've started our tech demos with CAP 1617 and our upcoming generation two spacecraft are really going to demonstrate that. And as we build out the constellation, that's, that's what we're going for is, is, I mean, we have a poster right behind you. This is unbounded connectivity. That's what we're going for. Um, so yeah, those are our previous spacecraft. Our generation two spacecraft will have the KU band so that the high data rate, um, which has been demonstrated on all of our previous spacecraft, our S-band user equipment, which has been demonstrated on Kepler 16 and 17, and then our um, optical intersatellite links, which will allow high data rate intersatellite links. Um, I will defer to Diane about how much I can talk about that one uh, <laughs> on that, but that will be upcoming and demonstrated on, on our Generation 2 spacecraft. So, yeah. That's fantastic. So I, I, love the, I love the use of the word constellation. You have multiple orbiting devices right now, right? Yeah. And, and this is the coolest part for me. Those things that are up in orbit right now were made right here. They were, yes. Wow. By Sarah. By me. Um, I, <laughs> By you. Yes, I have had my hands on, oh, all but the first two of our spacecraft and all but the first four of our spacecraft were built in-house at Spadina, so. Wow, that is incredible. And we currently have 19 satellites on orbit. Thank you, that was gonna, yeah. So we just got a tour of your facility and it was incredible. For those of, I mean, for the people who weren't here for the tour, can you tell us a little bit about some of the capabilities that you ha that you guys have right here in the building? Do you want me to take this yeah, one? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so, so on site at Spadina, we have a clean room. Um, it is, I gotta look up exactly how big it is. Do you know that one off the top of your head? It's you about 2,000 square feet. About 2,000 square feet. So it's not a huge clean room, but it's definitely big enough for our needs. It's bigger than my condo. Yeah, it's bigger <laughs> than my apartment. So, you know, in Toronto, it's big. Yep, huge. But yeah, so we have a we have an in-house clean room, so that, that allows us to do production of flight components, anything that would be sensitive to foreign object debris, anything we just want to keep protected and, and safe. Um, we also have a lot of test equipment here. The kind of really cool things that we have in-house, we have a thermal vacuum chamber, and it allows us to essentially simulate our orbit. Um, we put the spacecraft in there, uh, we pull a vacuum on it, and then we can temperature cycle it, and it allows us to simulate what the spacecraft will experience when it is on orbit. 
Um, so we have one of those in-house and that has been really awesome because it means we don't have to you know, go somewhere else and do external, you know, work with external contractors. Um, and then the other really cool thing that we have in-house is uh, anechoic chamber. This allows us to test our radios. It is essentially a big room with a bunch of foam blocks in it that absorb radio waves. And essentially when the satellite is in there and transmitting over the radio, it thinks it's in space. There's no reflections off of anything. It allows us to see what the antenna patterns would look like, to verify the performance of our antennas. We have a RF team, the, ra the, the radio team, and they spend a lot of time in there. And then I periodically show up and bully them into letting me use it for the entire spacecraft. But yeah, so we do a lot of testing in there. The main thing we don't have on site, which is, is one that I would love to have, but we can't, is a vibration table. So your standard set of testing, um, what you'd consider environmental testing, would be thermal vacuum testing, which we have on site, over the air and electromagnetic compatibility testing, which we can do in the anechoic chamber. And then the third one is vibration testing, and that ensures that you can survive the launch. So we have to prove that to be able to go on a launch vehicle. We can't have a vibration table on Spadina because the building is so old that it would be shook into pieces <laughs> if we put a shaker table here. So we do um, outsource um, vibe testing, but that's the only one we have to outsource at this point. So. Well, that's fair. I mean, yeah, shaking the building yeah. apart would maybe not no, be. No, that like, would be. I feel like that's frowned upon. Yeah, there's enough old buildings in Toronto that have been lost to you know progress. We'd hate to lose one more. Yeah, yeah. So but, yeah. Wow. So this is incredible. Diane, you didn't start, obviously you didn't start your career here. Uh, you were working somewhere else before, correct? Correct, yeah. So prior to coming to Kepler, um, I, I worked just over 20 years still in the space business um, in Ontario at a company called ComDev in Cambridge. So I was there doing various things like uh, process engineering, quality engineering, engineering management, um, all geared around designing, building, and testing payloads, for RF payloads for uh, geostationary orbits orbiting satellites for telecommunications. That's basically the heritage space. And coming to Kepler is really that new space. We're working in the, the LEO orbits rather than the GEO orbits and, and a commercial entity as well. So not working with the government so much. Um, and this is more of uh, getting, getting commercial companies up into space, which I think is absolutely incredible and awesome. And it's a much vertically integrated company as well. So not only designing, testing, building payloads. Now we're, we're building our, our, our second generation satellite as well, the entire bus as well as the payload. And then post-launch, we actually are, are a satellite operator. And that actually puts us in a unique position when we're talking to customers for our service because we know what it's like to, sa to operate satellites. We're not just manufacturing them, we're operating them as well. That's incredible. So tell me a little bit about the space market. Because I mean, full disclosure, my background was automotive manufacturing. And I've seen every end of it, like from the manufacturing to the government. Mm -hmm. to the, I even sold cars some years ago. Don't judge me. Tell me a little bit about the space industry. What, what, what can you, how is it different? How is it the same? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I can tell you, like, you know, you, you look back things like 10 years ago where the, you got the shuttle still moving, shuttle still launching, the International Space Station still having modules added to it. The Falcon 9 hadn't launched yet. So there's been so many changes in the space industry. Um, that I've been that I've been a, a party to as well, and uh, it's it's really opened it up for commercial um, applications. And one of the, the markets that uh, is really big right now in the lower Earth orbit is Earth observation. So there's lots of Earth observation satellites, and what are they doing? They're they're taking pictures, they're imaging the Earth, 
um, they need to get that data down um, so that we can have information and be smart and make, make choices that we need um, as fast as possible. Uh, for example, there's times where if you're going to get information 30 minutes or an hour after you need it, that could be life-changing. We're talking about forest fires, um, uh, anything that has to do with maybe a military movements, um, climates, things like that. that, that it's, uh, and that's what Kepler's enabling. So th those are the places we're going after is the Earth observation satellites that need to get their data down. We're, we'll create that communication system. We're enabling them to complete their mission as well. Um, so that, that's what excites me about this as well and, and, and what we're doing for them. But it really is that uh, Earth observation. You actually kind of answered my next question, which was tell me a little bit about some of your customers. Uh, can you, I, I imagine governments would probably be very interested in this. Yep. Um, who else? Um, so yeah, government and, and commercial entities, as I said, so earth observation, um, anything, anyone that wants to detect, uh, AIS ships, like our ships in the right places where they should be, um, looking for, um, leaks and potentially pipelines, oil leaks, things like that to monitor, um, things that are happening here on earth. One of the things that we're seeing recently, more coming out of the United States, the way that the United States gets information about China's economy is by Earth observation. How many cars are in the parking lot of the mall? Mm -hmm. how, many, how many cars are, are in the staging area, in the, in the shunting area of Chinese car factories? And so it just, uh, they're, appear that there's so much data that is available when we can see that from from space uh and i think we've only really would you agree diane we've only really scratched the surface of w what's available to us yeah yeah no i'd agree with that for sure so we just got the tour and incredible i, I mean brendan i think we were both very equally impressed with the kind of capabilities that you have here your staff was very young. You guys seem to have a very young staff and a very diverse staff. I cannot say that as easily about other manufacturing sectors. How did that happen? Um, yeah, so I think one of the reasons is that we're in downtown Toronto, and so we attract that type of talent as well. It's a big city. It's got, got that great vibe. It does. Um, and I think that, that uh, and we're close to the universities, so that's we're getting a, a nice, young, energetic workforce that's in here. Um, I think space as well attracts people and, and it, it's, I would say, some of the most intrinsically motivated people I've ever worked with is in the space environment. And when we do go through our hiring strategies, uh, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier as well, uh, when, we're, when we're creating our job descriptions, we make sure that they're, they're inclusive and that they're not going to make somebody not want to apply. Like the, they're going to be, so we're looking for a very diverse workforce. That's, that's critical. We, we've, we've learned about the importance of that and addressing the biases in hiring practices. Could you expand a bit on that, that, that concept of intrinsic motivation or the, the intrinsic qualities that, you, that you're looking for? In yeah, so it's team? like people who are, they have this as a hobby. Like a lot of people that you talk to here um, at Kepler will tell you that they're at home they're working on electronics boards as well. They're working on, I don't know if, satel if uh, Sarah is actually building satellites at home, but Are there's you? a lot. <laughs> she might be. I will not confirm nor deny any suspicions <laughs> of what I do in my tiny little Toronto apartment. Yeah, so there's no, like it's, it's a hobby for a lot of people too, and and space. They're just very very interested in space, um, and the and what motivates them is the mission as well. Like what we are going to do is changing the world. 
what we're going to do is impacting their lives, their, their um, next generation's lives. And, uh, and I think that, that really motivates a lot of the people to come here as well and stay. Diane, can you expand a little bit on your career path? Where you started, what motivated you, and then how you got to here, if you could. I could, yeah, sure. My, um, so when I was growing up, my father was an engineer. And so I was exposed to engineering at, a, at an early age. Um, and I had a very supportive parents and uh, told me I could do anything I wanted to do. And I, I enjoyed math and I enjoyed science. And it just seemed like a logical extension to, okay, let's try engineering. I really loved it. I, I always enjoy finding how things work, take them apart and uh, see what's going on in the inside. I don't always put it back together, but uh, I do like taking things apart and, and seeing how they work. Um, one of the first jobs I had was working as, at an optics company up in, uh, in Midland. And uh, I really enjoyed working with that. I'm a materials engineer, so that was what was interesting to me, was working with materials and how they work in uh, really um, tough environments. And one of the jobs I worked on was uh, when I was up there was a program called Moppet, Measurement of Pollution in the Troposphere. And we were creating optical lenses for a company that was doing this space mission. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, my, my God, something I'm touching is going to go into space. Like, so then I was like hooked. So I was, I was sort of hooked on space a little later in life, maybe in my 20s. And that was when it was like, okay, that's really cool. That's a pretty harsh environment that the material's going to go into. I had to learn more about that. So I started learning more about that, and I said, this is a company I have to go work for. Um, so I did. So I went and then worked for that company for, for 20 years and um, had a lot of great mentors and, and help and support system along the way there. And it was a smaller company when I started there. And as the years went by, it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then um, eventually became acquired by another really large organization. And at that point, I wanted to go back to a smaller organization with, with a really great mission. Um, and that's what uh, brought me to Kepler. I love the fact, and I think we talked about this a little bit on our our, our, our our video call. I love the fact that the space economy has got has reached the point where we now have boutique satellite companies. Yeah, I think that is a fantastic place to be in the in the economy. Now, Sarah, I'm going to ask you the same question that I just asked Diane, and um, please tell us how you got to where you are. Um, I feel like my story is a bit shorter. I came to Kepler kind of straight out of school. But yeah, before that, like I grew up, I think Diane and I share this in that growing up, we had very supportive families. I was told from a young age that I could do whatever it was that I wanted to. I knew I wanted to be an engineer from the time I was about 12. I did. So I grew up in London, which is where you guys are based. And Western had, you know, engineering girls club, which was super fun and um, engineering camps in the summer. And my parents were like, well, you want to do this? Go for it. And just popped me right in those. And so, yeah, I knew from quite a young age that I would go into engineering. I kind of flopped between what kind of engineering I wanted to do. I started flying airplanes at 15 and so wanted to do. You're yeah, a I pilot? See the, I see the surprise that yes. Yeah, I have a private license. Wow. Yeah, I used to fly out of London. It was good fun. You might be the coolest person I've, I've just met. And we've met some cool people on the podcast. Wow. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah. So, so for a while, I was, you know, interested in, in um, like, aviation, sort of aerospace, or, well, yeah, the aircraft side of aerospace. But um, space was always, so this is going to sound a little bit, I don't know, lame or something. Um, aircraft were a little boring. 
in that yeah i get that the you know in that the uh problems that were being solved like a lot of the big problems have already been solved we're just iterating and making the product a little bit better space on the other hand to quote star trek was the final frontier um yes. and was was you know this new and exciting place where we could really push boundaries and so when I had to specialize, um, I went up to Carleton for, for undergrad, and you specialize in your second year. Um, and when I had to specialize within my stream, what I was going to be doing, um, I picked the space stream because that was, that was kind of the new and exciting, really pushing the envelope, pushing boundaries. Um, and I've always been interested in space. I had all the Star Wars Legos as a kid and, you know, would constantly ask my father what was outside of the universe and how to go faster than the speed of light and all of these unanswerable questions. Um, you can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But Not yet. 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 Yeah. No. <laughs> based on our current laws of physics, no. Currently right. known laws of physics, no. Um, but yeah, so I was kind of always interested in the space industry and then uh, took a brief foray into astronomy and then decided to miss engineering. Um, so after my master's degree, uh, Kepler happened to be hiring at exactly the right time. And so I just rocked in here and joined as a systems engineer and haven't left. So I've been around for a while. Wow. Yeah, I think you might be the coolest person I've met on this podcast. <laughs> I try. Wow. I think she's the coolest person I've met. Yeah, no, she, you gave a fantastic tour. Your passion was palpable. Your competence was palpable. That's good. I try on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, you, you were a very impressive advocate and ambassador for your company and certainly your, uh, the space you're in. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be full of those. Sorry. So I'm going to bring this back to something that Trillium has been talking about because we are Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. It sounds to me like both of you did not encounter the same kind of barriers that a lot of other women face in different manufacturing sectors. Would you, I, say, that, would you say that's I true? I think that's accurate. I think, I think that's fair, yeah. Yeah, I think both of us were lucky to be in environments that were very supportive, and I think that that's something that, like, I'm, I feel strongly, I would love to do more outreach, and then the pandemic hit, and so I couldn't do anything. But mentoring is something that's very important to me. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so so like I mean, for me, I've I've taken on casual mentorship of some of the the local student teams that are building satellites. So that's I, I like doing that. But for me, it's important to provide access to kids who wouldn't necessarily either think to go into STEM or who who may face other barriers to going into STEM. So whether that's economic barriers, whether that is, you know, gender norms, whether that is cultural norms, whatever. I think it's really important to have things that allow, you know, a space to to explore the options of STEM. So like I called out the Engineering Girls Club from Western. I don't know if it's still happening, but when I was a kid, that was great. It was just run by the engineering department at Western. It was like Saturday mornings I would go and you know, every week we did a different engineering-y focused thing and then we went and play, played laser tag at the end. It was good fun. Nice. Um, back before Laser Quest closed. With space lasers? I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but so I think that, that that's something that's, that's super important to, yeah, increase, increasing diversity. And I think that, yeah, both Diane and I were very lucky to exist in a world that we were told we could do whatever we wanted. So. And then you did. And then and we did. did. And we believed it. Yeah. Right. And I think just as, along with the mentoring, it's the networking as well and, and getting the connections. And I know when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have like that social media that you could that you have nowadays with LinkedIn where you could just reach out like you'd reach out to Sarah, you could reach out to me. 
um, and we would talk to you and, and help um, help make connections. Let's talk real quick about how to get this stuff into orbit. Right now, I think, because you guys have a constellation up there. And you said there was 12 currently? 19. Sorry, 19. 19. Um, Fun fact, we are the largest Canadian operator of satellites. High five. I think that's still accurate. High 19. High 19. High 19. <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How do you get from satellites on Spadina to, I assume it's low Earth orbit, or are you geo? Or we're, we're in Leo. We're Leo? in low, low Earth orbit. Okay. Yep. And by the way, sorry, uh, for, for the listeners, Leo, low Earth orbit, and geo is geosynchronous, right? Correct. Okay. So how do you get them up there? There, there's a number of different launch providers. They basically have rockets, and we pay them to send our satellites into space. Historically, pre-SpaceX, this would be things like the Russian Soyuz frigate, the um, Ariane Space Vega, you know, all those other ones with SpaceX coming along. They now have the Falcon 9. And the way that we typically would launch, we are a smaller satellite. We are what is called a secondary payload traditionally. And so traditionally you would have a large satellite that was like, I'm gonna pay for this rocket to go to this place at this time. Also, I have some more space, so bring your friends. And so we would pay to you know, be a little friend on the side of, of the you know, launch vehicle. With the advent of SpaceX's Falcon 9, it is more like a bus that just goes to orbit. You pay for a bus ticket, show up, get on the bus, and then you go. It's a little more complicated than that, but um, it's, it's, it's led to a bit of a shift in the way that we think about launching. So there's no primary payload typically. It's usually just a bunch of small satellites that are on there that are just going to a specific spot on, in orbit. And yeah, so that's how we get up now. So we just, we, you know, procure a launch spot from them or from a launch service provider. And then we send our satellites down to wherever they need to be integrated to the launch vehicle and then step back and watch the launch and wait for a little bit and then talk to them. So Nice. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask a question that's punching way above my intellect. Go for it. So I, <laughs> Brenda's looking at me funny. I noticed upstairs uh, a lot of the testing equipment. I mean, obviously it was well above whatever I could understand. But what's different about modern satellites? Because I mean, I mean, the Sputnik was the size of a basketball, right? What I saw upstairs was about... They're 10 kilograms. I compare them to the size of a cereal box. Yes, thank you. It was about the size of... A family a pack cereal box. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how... Tell me about the technology, about the actual nuts and... What's been improved in the past 10 years? Well, so not just even the past 10 years, but if you compare Sputnik over to current spacecraft, think about the size of a computer back in the 1960s versus are all of our phones. Right. So um, a lot of, I mean, really fundamentally, a spacecraft is a computer, so the brains, some kind of power, batteries, solar panels typically, thermal management, attitude determination and control. So you'll have your magnetorkers, reaction wheels, sun sensors, star sensors, attitude determination control bits and pieces, and then whatever makes it special. So the payload, which in our case is the, the radios. And you also always have a telecommunications and command radio just to talk to the ground. So computers have gotten a lot smaller and a lot more powerful over the past 10 to 15 years. I mean, even just like your consumer electronics stuff, like think about how powerful your phone is now as compared to the bricks that we had back in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. So that has allowed us to make big jumps in terms of what we're able to do on orbit 
because you can pack a ton of data and a ton of processing into a much smaller space now. So, and it's a lot cheaper than it used to be. Interesting. I guess cooling a processor is probably easy in the vacuum of space, no? Oh, thermal management is a whole thing. Did I just um, make a dumb, was I stupid there? <laughs> thermal management is a problem. Not a problem. It's a it's a thing that we have to design for. So on Earth, we rely on primarily convective heating. Um, you have your atmosphere to you know have a fan on your computer. You got a fan there, right? You just blow off hot air, and you don't have to deal with that. Right. Imagine that same computer in space without a fan on it. So thermal management is actually a really big thing. So rather than having a fan, what we do is we'll have like heat pipes, which you have on your um, normal computer, like a copper water heat pipe is quite common. Um, but instead of going to a fan, it goes to a radiator and it's just a big reflective surface, surface that um, we dump all the heat to and it just emits into space, but it takes some time to emit. So on one hand, you have hot spots on the spacecraft, but on the other hand, space is cold and so you have quite large thermal differences um, between when you're in eclipse on the sort of in quotes dark side of earth versus in sunlight when you have full sun coming along so it's a really neat problem and yeah diane you might have more comments about that i don't do actually very much thermal stuff but thermal management is a, a really interesting problem on on spacecraft yeah i mean i i, I can't add too much to that than what you've already just just talked about there but um, it's just the, the the environment that we're in is so different than here on Earth. With um, as you mentioned, the convection um, and radiation that we're that or sorry, radiating the 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 heat out. When you saw on the tour, when you see our hardware in the loop room where we have all of the flat sat that that Sarah was talking us through, and and all of our modems and hardware, we've got fans set up everywhere, and that's trying to keep everything cool. We can't do that in space for the reasons that Sarah was just saying. So we have we have thermal engineers that work on that problem. Tell me about some of the other challenges of, of working in that environment of, you know, zero microgravity, no atmosphere, temperature deltas of like, I, I assume hundreds of degrees. It's not as bad as you think there. We're talking like minus 40 to plus 70 sort of range. Oh, is that? Um, that's yeah, oh, okay. Good, yeah. Um, you're, you're like bits and pieces that are hanging off, um, like your solar panels would be a little bit more than that. But um, yeah, the, the platform stays kind of minus 30 to plus 30 plus 40 with some hot spots in it but you know it's it's actually not in low earth orbit it's not as bad as it is deep space like the James Webb Space Telescope has to deal with significantly colder temperatures and significantly different thermal environments but for us it's actually not as bad as it could be we'll put it that way but yeah in terms of like other challenges, te like technology challenges, is kind of what you're looking at. I mean, thermal is always an interesting thing. One thing that, I'm gonna talk about attitude control. So, so one of the interesting things that we're getting to explore for our next generation spacecraft, we're getting optical links on our spacecraft. So those need a really fine pointing. Sorry, what's an optical link? So our, our next generation spacecraft will have, um, instead of just having an inter-satellite link that is radio, which we've demonstrated on our Kepler 16 and 17 spacecraft, we will also have, essentially, lasers in space. Uh, there it is. <laughs> so There it is. We will have lasers in space, and it's, it's an optical terminal, and it's, it just has a laser. I mean, I say just. It's very complicated. Um, and it, you know, it has rather than a radio link, it's just it uses a laser. If I and, and this is me being Morty, and so and correct me if I'm just like, oh, Nick, you're adorable. It, 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 are the advantages of using a laser 
instead of a radio because tra- I as I understand a radio transmission kind of projects out in 360 degrees whereas a laser is right there yeah is yeah. that cybersecurity? uh so advantages I mean I luckily don't have to think about cybersecurity too much in my stuff but I know that's something that we have discussed as a company and Diane if you have comments about it I will absolutely defer to you on that this is Definitely something the software guys worry about and stuff like that. But it's less cybersecurity and more high data rates. So our small antennas, I don't know what we're quoting them at right now, so don't quote me on these numbers. But we're talking for, for um, you know, a telecommunications and command antenna. You're talking in the sort of two megabit per second range. And so you're able to get you know some data back and forth. You can talk to it. It's like texting, you know, a little bit better than texting. Uh, laser link will provide. It's like a fiber link. You know, you're you're providing significantly higher data rate. So if you're wanting to, Diane was talking about earlier um, Earth observing um, spacecraft. If you've got an Earth observing spacecraft that's taking photos, and you want to send it from one satellite to another satellite. That laser link enables really, really fast speeds. It's like the equivalent of having dial-up versus fiber. Literally the speed of light. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a very focused beam. Um, so one of the interesting things that we get to look at for this upcoming set of spacecraft is our attitude control because we need really good pointing. So we have a whole crew of our um, guidance navigation control uh, engineers who get to uh, deal with all the algorithms of how we're going to point the spacecraft we have reaction wheels on board um, and so how do you control those to enable good pointing we have a suite of sensors and how do you put all those things together and all that information that you're getting and turn it into pointing the spacecraft so that's a really cool project that that will be not a difficulty but a new and exciting kind of portion of this Um, so that'll that that'll be fun it is fun I'll bet. For the uninformed, can you quickly explain what a reaction wheel is? Because I think those are really cool uh, space targeting. Can you explain what that is, please? Yeah, so a reaction wheel follows Newton's second law, the law that is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. reaction. And so what it is is literally just a wheel. Um, It's got an electromotor in it, and it's got a, a wheel that spins. And so you spin the wheel up to the left and the spacecraft will rotate to the right because every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So it essentially, it allows us to point the spacecraft where we want because we can very precisely control the speed of the wheel. We can very precisely control the rotation rate of the spacecraft. And so it allows us to, you know, if we're tracking a ground target, the spacecraft is moving over the ground and you have to constantly tilt the spacecraft. You're pitching the spacecraft as you're coming over that ground target. And the reaction wheels allow us to do this. They allow us to maintain pointing at that ground target. Same thing for an inter-satellite link for another spacecraft. We would just point at the other spacecraft. And as we go on by, you rotate the spacecraft to maintain that link. So they they are really the only way to practice, like in there's you know other hacky ways that you could probably get around it, but it's it's really the best way to do high precision pointing is is reaction wheels. All major spacecraft, all all like James Webb Space Telescope has six of them. I'm not sure how theirs is set up. I think they might be in a pyramid configuration, but you, typically you'd you'd have reaction wheel actuation about all three axes. So your X Y okay. Z axis. Yeah, it's it's a whole. It, I love reaction wheel uh, stuff. It's pretty neat unbounded connectivity. You've given us a sneak peek about what's next, like literally the next satellite. Let's talk big picture. What's the big next? 
So we're talking about the unbounded connectivity, I mean, th this is where we're talking about our having our constellation up there. And it's got an optical satellite link, so we've got a backbone of optical linking, and we're also connecting optically with our customers. That would be the, that's the end goal, right? So we're connecting now with them, sending us our, their data fast. We're able to get that data down for the information and being able to make those decisions as quickly as possible, and you have like real-time access to your satellite that's up there, and that doesn't exist right now. You don't have real-time access to your satellite to be able to move it, to command it. If you want to take a picture of something down on Earth, uh, that could take 30, 60 minutes, even maybe even longer. Um, because as Sarah was mentioning, you're only in contact with your satellite when you're over a ground station. And uh, you can't be over a ground station on the ocean, so 80% of the time, you're not even going to be in contact with your satellite. So having, that, having our constellation up there, and we're providing that real-time access for not only low data rate to be able to communicate to your satellite, but high data rate and get that information down as soon as possible. So we're, we're working on our demonstration satellites right now. That'll be demonstrating our optical satellite link coming up shortly, and that'll be the precursor to our constellation. I hope you'll keep, uh, keep us in mind when that happens. It's been a weird couple years. Yeah. Yep. What are you most looking forward to in 2023 and beyond? I think I think the launch of our Generation 2, the Tranche Zero Pathfinder spacecraft that we're launching for Generation 2 is going to be, for me, incredibly exciting. This is our first spacecraft that we're building the entire spacecraft ourselves. The bus and the payload entirely ourselves. It's all our design. It's really, really exciting to get to be the test lead for that, like the assembly integration test lead for that is just so cool. On a purely selfish or like personal level, I realized that like I'm getting an opportunity way earlier in my career than I think a lot of other people do get to be able to design a test program for these spacecraft. It's super exciting. And so I'm really, really excited to see kind of that come to fruition. Um, in the next couple of years as we're getting our Gen 2 stuff on orbit and see, yeah, that it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really exciting. It's a whole new spacecraft. It's way bigger than what we've done before. And how much is it going to weigh? It's 120 kilograms, and my personal goal before that is to deadlift the spacecraft weight. Nice. Just the weight, though, not the spacecraft. Just the weight. Right, I don't think I can deadlift the <laughs> spacecraft. I don't think they'll put uh, fixtures in there for me, but my goal is a... Uh, yeah, a 120-kilogram one rep max before we launch the spacecraft. So Actually, that'd be a good test because what you could do is you deadlift and then you drop it. And then if it survives, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Diane's That's what I say. It's the weight, look. not the spacecraft. <laughs> no, I won't deadlift the spacecraft. Well, and, uh, that's what I'll say. I won't deadlift the and spacecraft. And you're right. Like The last, last little while has been really crazy. And I will say that like Kepler's doubled in size during the pandemic. We have really been hiring a lot of people. Um, for the design of our second generation satellite, as Sarah was talking about. And we've been doing a lot of design work in the last year, and I'm really excited about seeing all of that coming in right now. And on the tour, you may have seen some of it um, that, we, that we've got set up around. And so, like, this is the year where a lot of things physically are coming to fruition for these designs. And I'm also looking forward to meeting some of the people we've hired that I haven't met yet in person because <laughs> we just haven't been all in the office. Yeah, I guess um, the virtual work thing has been... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, and we have really thrived during that time. As I say, we've doubled in size and um, a lot of people are working from home and we still have that flexibility, even though um, I won't say the pandemic's over, I won't be that person that says that, but um, fingers are still crossed on that. 
but uh, we do have we have people that are coming into the office more and more, especially as we have physical hardware coming in here. We need to do tests. We need to be touching it. Sarah needs to be in here building them, unless she is really doing it out of her. Home. I live here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so it's really going to be good to to actually meet some of these people that we've really only been interacting with virtually. That's incredible. So during the pandemic, you guys were still working, right? Yep. Did you guys build anything during the pandemic? Uh, eight spacecraft eight in two months. Eight spacecraft in two months. I yep. lived in the clean room at that point, yeah. Well, it's a big clean room. I mean, you're yeah. in Toronto. That's, some, that's a lot of real estate. Yeah. How did, so I guess you guys must have been using, what kind of technology, or not even technology, what kind of, I, I assume software played a big role in this? So I luckily don't have to worry so much about software. We have a very competent software team that just d d like delivers software to me magically. And it's this magical black box that just works. Awesome. Which is great. But yeah, no, no, building it, uh, yeah. <laughs> just lined up all the spacecraft and built them all one after the other and tested them all one after the other. It was a very, very busy time, but it was really rewarding. There's a photo of the core group of us who were building once we'd packed them all up for launch, just like lying on the floor of the clean room with all the satellites <laughs> and their like their pelican cases where they're going to get shipped or that they were being shipped into to their launch. And yeah, photos of us all lying on the ground in the clean room. It's, it's kind of like batch manufacturing, right? It really was. Yeah. We like wow. one after the other after the other. I would walk down the yep. line of the spacecraft and like, you know, test this one. And then while this one's being tested, I'd go to the next one and like put on a part of the next one. And then we kind of built them two by two um, just because that was the easier way to do it. But yeah, we started our first batch manufacturing. And, and you know, in, the, in our industry, as Sarah was saying, we've got a, we got a ticket on the bus. Yep. We're, we're going on a ride share. We, are, we have to make the launch date. We don't have, we're, we don't have that luxury of, okay, we're going to take an extra little bit of time. Take the next so, bus. Kind yeah, of we don't, with, the next bus might not be coming along. Right. That's incredible. I want to thank you both. For your time i want to thank you both for taking us uh, on an incredible tour i love that this place exists and moving forward let us know how we can help you because this is just fantastic thank you 